This is Dr. J. Buzz von Ornsteiner, forensic psychologist from Copycat Killers, Reels Channel's true crime program about real murders inspired by movies. Be sure to subscribe to our series on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts. Then go to Reels.com, that's R-E-E-L-Z.com, to find true crime TV series like this one on Reels Channel. This program contains graphic violence. Your discretion is advised. The Fisher King, an inspirational tale of redemption in the wake of tragedy. But moviegoer George Hennard misses the message. When he saw The Fisher King and hearing that DJ talk about how women are evil, George really related to that. He identified with what that man was saying. And he felt empowered that here was someone that was speaking my language. Hell-bent on revenge, George reenacts the Fisher King's most violent scene. With two guns and a hundred rounds of ammunition, George picks his targets. And he is intent on going out in a blaze of glory. He focused mainly on the women. He was just screaming out things about, you did this to me, you're going to pay. And in his delusional anger, he leaves a trail of bodies in his wake. I knew I had to stop the situation then and there. It was a complete focus of eliminating him. (laughs) His mother said he was pairing himself after the Fisher King. One of the first things I heard. 1991, The Fisher King. Terry Gilliam's genre-bending morality tale where dark comedy, drama, and fantasy collide. It also may be the unintentional motivation for one of the worst mass shootings in American history. Tyler Richardson, film critic. The Fisher King is about a mass shooting that occurs after a DJ takes a caller and that caller believes that he's been instructed to go out and commit an act of violence. The the shock jock feels guilty, so he tries to help a man who was affected by the shooting. Jeff Bridges stars as Jack Lucas, the smooth-talking shock jock DJ who inadvertently triggers the killings. Robin Williams plays Perry, a man driven mad by grief after his wife is gunned down in the deadly rampage. Jack feels responsible for what happened to Perry, so he wants to befriend him and to try to make up for what was taken from him. He wants him to be happy again. The actor's raw and emotional portrayals of healing and friendship keep audiences glued to the screen. But for 35-year-old George Hennard, the Fisher King's moving message of redemption is completely lost. And he fixates on the film's most horrific plot point. October 16, 1991 starts out like any other day in Colleen, Texas. It's the lunchtime rush at one of the town's busiest restaurants. Customer Sam Wink is inside the eatery. The atmosphere when we got there was was uh, very, very upbeat. Everyone was, was, was happy. It was a noisy crowd, and everybody was enjoying themselves and talking. 
The patrons inside have no idea they're about to be a part of a scene ripped right from the pages of the Fisher King's script. We were in the middle of the restaurant, and just all of a sudden we heard a crash into the window. And this truck came driving through, and he came to a stop probably 15 feet from our table. At first, it seems like a terrible accident. I thought, well, this guy's had a heart attack and hit the gas instead of the brake and, or something went wrong, and he crashed through the window. After the dust settles, a man slowly steps out of the pickup truck. I remember him looking terribly, terribly mad. It is anger in his eyes. Everybody was wondering what was going on. And for a few seconds, no one knew. Until he started shooting. Inside this restaurant, George Hennard begins unleashing his rage on innocent people. And like the character George emulates, this hatred is a long time in the making. Growing up in a military family, George Hennard never really has a place to call home. Ron Fransel, author, delivered from evil. George's father was an army doctor. They uh, had a lot of posts all over the country, and he moved around a lot. The constant upheaval is hard on George. As with most kids, changing schools, changing friends, changing the faces of the people around them, they have a difficult time. Dr. J. Buzz von Ornsteiner, forensic psychologist. For George in particular, it made making friendships very challenging. At each new town, George desperately tries to fit in. George searched for stability in his life of some kind. He wanted to have a life that was like all the other kids. Uh, he wanted a girlfriend. He wanted friends. But the constant moving made that impossible. He works hard on his looks in an attempt to impress his new classmates. George was trim. He was good-looking. He had nice hair. For George, having long hair, he felt it would bring him girls. He felt it would bring him friendships. But personality-wise, he was socially awkward. People didn't know what to make of him. He didn't understand why he didn't fit in. It was everybody else. It wasn't George. Somehow, they were to blame, not him. George! George, get down here! Gene! This difficult time is made worse by his strained relationship with his father. He is not doing anything. He is not handed in any work. He is failing off his test. Okay, just calm down. Let's talk this out. Down. Now. What have you been doing in school? George's father was a very strong disciplinarian, and uh, George rebelled against that, as most young, young people do. I just spoke with your teachers. You are failing everything. I just calm spoke... Down. Calm down. He had a little bit better relationship with his mother, whom he adored, but also still had conflicts with. Get upstairs until I tell you to come down. Do you understand? George's father was a military doctor and a very intelligent man and had done very well in school. But unfortunately, his relationship with George wasn't very good. George never really met his expectations. George was a very mediocre student. George tries to dull the sting of loneliness with drugs and alcohol. 
he found serenity in smoking pot. He immersed himself in all of these alternative ways that he could feel better about himself. But his father isn't having any of it. George's father didn't like the fact that his son wasn't particularly excelling at anything. And that was a disappointment to his father. So one day, his dad takes a drastic measure to try and straighten out his son. What are you, what are you doing? What is this? What is this? You're doing this in my house? You're doing this in my house? Huh? What's wrong with you? This disrespect is over. It's over. I'm sick of this, George. You understand me? I'm sick of it. I'm sick and I'm tired of this. There was an argument. And George's father, with anger and intent, cut off his son's hair. Once George's head was shaved, he drew inward. He, He became very introverted and, and less outgoing than he had been before. He believed that one of the things that, that he really had going for him, his looks, had been destroyed. It's an emotional tipping point in George's young life. So not only was it a terrible haircut, but it was demeaning to George. Once his hair was cut off, he felt girls were no longer interested. He never seemed to grasp or make the connection that it wasn't that he had lost his hair, but that it was his personality that was turning these women off. Later in life, George's feelings of not belonging will turn into hatred, and his anger will recreate a scene from the movie The Fisher King. Ken Olson, retired Kylene Police Department. They found a ticket stub to the movie called Fisher King. And theories have uh, developed from that. You know, he reenacted the movie there. He is evil. He is angry. And he is intent on going out in a blaze of glory. Just like Edwin in The Fisher King. Texas teen George Hennard never had a feeling of belonging. Especially with women. It's similar to the character Edwin, who calls into a radio show during the opening scene of The Fisher King. Edwin is a frequent caller to the radio show, and he often fantasizes about these women that are out of his league. Jack's advice to Edwin was that attractive people aren't even people, that attractive women look down on people with imperfections that they deem to be less than their equal and tells them that they have to be stopped. Jack's over-the-top comments inadvertently trigger the caller to do the unthinkable. After Edwin called into Jack's show, he hears Jack's words about how horrible attractive people are and the message is they have to be stopped. So he goes to a restaurant with a shotgun and executes as many people as he can before taking his own life. Jack blames himself for the deaths, and this horrific event sparks the main plot of the movie. But for 35-year-old George Hennard, this shooting is seemingly inspirational. 
he can relate firsthand with the caller's troubles with women. For George, more than anything, he wanted to have a girlfriend. But personality-wise, George was just strange, and people didn't know what to make of him. George decides to join the Navy in a desperate attempt at a fresh start. The Navy gave him the things that he wanted in his life. At sea, George can be what he wants to be. But it's not the camaraderie or the discipline George enjoys. It's the extracurricular activities off the ship. He had easy access to women that he could pay to service his needs. He could get drunk, stoned, and purchase women. These women would never reject him. These women would accommodate him. These women would go along with whatever he said. In the company of prostitutes, George's behavior drastically changes. His interactions with people were so awful and so abusive and bordered on being so violent. He views the women as possessions. An object that couldn't talk back, an object that couldn't interact with him, was the object of his affection. George may be having the time of his life, but his reckless ways soon catch up with him. He was an anti-authoritarian character, and ultimately the Navy just didn't work for George. He got an honorable discharge, but on his paperwork, um, somebody had written, not recommended for re-enlistment. George is devastated. No matter what George did to try to redeem himself, they just didn't want him. He goes home. The downward spiral only continues. After his discharge, uh, George returns to Belton, Texas, where his father had retired ultimately divorced his mother, and he lives for a time in the uh, vacant home that they had once shared. There, George becomes even more unhinged. Living alone in that big mansion, George is adrift. George knows his life is unanchored, and it bothers him, and it's just making him angrier and more hateful. He becomes hypervigilant about taking care of his home and even has a run-in with a female neighbor. I saw you last night, didn't I? I don't know what you're talking George would often yell at women who were simply walking or driving past the house, uh, sometimes lewd, sometimes angry. George had two delusions. One was that women were out to destroy him, but then another delusion that women desired him. Despite these outbursts, despite the odd behavior, there was nothing to be done. George was just a character. Uh, he hadn't broken any laws. Seemingly, George's only friend is his brand new truck. One of the few gifts George gives himself is a new truck, uh, and he loves it. He was obsessed with this truck. He washed it constantly. He polished it. In many ways, it just becomes the phallic image of the male. 
for neighbors who live next door, who saw George out on his driveway. It was so evident, so clear that he loved that car. The car became the object of his affection, an object that could not reject him. But even his beloved truck can't attract the one thing George wants most, women. George wasn't successful with women. And how he justified that failure was that women were to blame. And again, he viewed himself as blameless. What you looking at? You couldn't even handle riding this baby. Best keep walking. The longer women ignore him, the more he ruminates about how much he hates women due to their rejection of him. Basically, he was a ticking time bomb. He um, started exhibiting these behaviors about women conspiring against him. George's mother grows concerned. Hey. Hey, Mom. How are you? His mother had moved from Texas to Nevada, but she had left the house with George to sell. When George's mother left, George was alone in that big old house in a town where he had no friends, and he was left in isolation again. But George's mother comes up with a plan to help with her son's girl problems. George would occasionally visit his mother in Nevada where she was working in a salon. Um, one of those trips... She works in the nail shop, I told you that. She had fixed him up on a date with one of her co-workers. Everything, Everything good? perfect, you're going to have a good time. No matter what happened in George's life, he was always interested in meeting a woman, a beautiful woman, that he could call his girlfriend. But if George thinks he might have finally found the one, he is gravely mistaken. George believes that there is a woman out there someplace who's going to have the faculties and the, the, the qualities that make him look like the perfect man. And in this case, it almost looked like it was going to work. In the end, George couldn't help but be George. George's social inadequacies bubbled to the surface. Originally, things started out very well, but George started to discuss thoughts he had internally. Well, actually, um, there's an underlying reason why I chose to bring you to this uh, particular location. One day, George took his new love on a road trip. They went to San Isidro, California, the site of... Uh, a fast food restaurant massacre that had uh, gripped the nation a few years before. It's where James Huberty uh, stormed into the fast food restaurant and killed a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, all yours. You ever hear of a guy named James Huberty? He was fascinated with that crime, and he wanted to share his fascination with his new girlfriend. Uh, so he took her to the place it happened. I don't think so. Why? Well, several years back, he comes walking into this exact location, kills 21 people right here in this restaurant. George's off-color conversation puts an abrupt end to his date. He could not fathom 
why talking about killing and mass murder would turn this woman off. Are you done with your food? Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to eat anymore. All right, we should just leave. Good idea. This short-lived relationship is over for good. George's anger over the rejection only intensifies. He gets angrier. He gets more paranoid. It all comes to a, a, a violent conclusion. And just like in The Fisher King, the result will be deadly. His mother said he was parrying himself after The Fisher King. It's one of the first things I heard. It's Dr. J. Buzz von Ornsteiner. Did you know you can stream the Copycat Killers TV series on Roku and Fire TV? Well, you can. Just download the Reels app and subscribe to see the TV show behind this podcast. And if you've got Prime, it's on Amazon channels too. You could even find episodes about killers inspired by Breaking Bad, Hannibal, and The Dark Knight before they're released here. Plus, you'll get to see what I look like in the show. I know you're curious. Copycat Killers comes from the real crime fans at Reels Channel. Find Reels on your TV at Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com. Social outcast George Hennard is having trouble connecting with the outside world. His feelings of rejection are similar to the disturbed Edwin in The Fisher King. Edwin is the caller who Jeff Bridges' character Jack accidentally pushes over the edge. Edwin is a loner. His main contact with the outside world is this radio show. Edwin is calling because he's in love with another girl, and Jack tells Edwin that beautiful people aren't like you and I. They're almost not even people, the way that he speaks about them. And I suppose that Jack was doing him a favor by telling him, look, you're not in the same league as them. In real life, George Hennard knows this feeling all too well. But he can never put it into words until he sees the Fisher King. Hey, how you doing? Hey, good. How are you, sir? Good. Uh, just one ticket to the movie. Please. Okay. When he saw the Fisher King and hearing that DJ talk about how women are evil, George really related to that. He identified with what that man was saying. And he felt empowered that here was someone that was speaking my language. The movie pulled him in because he's so identified with that character. George is adrift. He's also reaching out to people unsuccessfully, as has always happened in his life. Uh, and especially when he seeks female companionship, he seems to be striking out again and again and again, and it's just making him angrier and more hateful. And like the lonely, unstable caller in The Fisher King, George is about to blow. He was alone. He couldn't hold a job. He still wanted women, and women still didn't want him. 
His paranoid delusions that women were to blame seemed to take over him at that point. And his only solution was then to take revenge. And the revenge was against all women. They basically controlled his movements. It's exactly what Edwin does in The Fisher King. When we look at The Fisher King and we look at George, we have to ask ourselves, well, there's a lot that is similar. However, The Fisher King is fiction. But George is real. And his belief systems are real. And he truly wants to destroy women. George drives to Las Vegas and buys two handguns at a local gun shop. The guns give him a sense of power, a sense of control. Just when it seems like nothing can stop George from doing the unthinkable, he's pulled Sir, over for that? suspicion of DUI. You doing okay? George was stopped in Nevada. Uh, he was charged with DUI and possession of firearms. But George is able to keep his weapons. Uh, he pleaded guilty to the uh, DUI charge and no contest on firearms and was fined $150 and let free. George's guns had been bought legally. They hadn't been used in a crime, so they weren't seized by the ranger who arrested him. In hindsight, the incident is an obvious red flag. But once again, George's abhorrent behavior is ignored by the outside world. After George's DUI, he begins to plan his revenge on women. He eyes up two girls living in his neighborhood. George wanted so badly to have a relationship that he invented one with two young teenage girls who were more than 10 years younger than George is, but he's fascinated by them. George follows them around town. The two girls have no idea they're being stalked by a madman. George seemed to create this fantasy that these two girls adored him and they were his groupies and that they, of course, loved him and desired him. This mirrors the behavior of another character in The Fisher King, Perry, played by Robin Williams. He admires Amanda Plummer's character Lydia from afar as his mind creates a fantasy world. It's very similar to George. They both are in love with women from afar, and they both were delusional and didn't want to see things the way that they were. Acting on this fantasy, George decides to finally confess his love. George writes a letter to them, but of course he doesn't know their names, so he makes up names for them. George writes that he's flattered that he has two groupy fans in these two young girls. Uh, in reality, they don't know he exists. The sinister note starts as a pseudo-love letter and turns into a manifesto describing George's desire for revenge on all women. As a psychologist, it shows that the mind is no longer reality-based, that his fantasies and delusions have taken over and are controlling his actions. He sends the letter to the girl's house, wanting to see how they'll react. 
the letter startles the girl's mom. She takes it to the local police department in Belton and want to report that this strange man is flirting with their daughters, but the police have no evidence of a crime, no evidence of anything untoward, and the whole matter's dropped. George slips through the cracks once again. Already on the edge of a total mental collapse, it will only take something small to finally push him over. On October 15, 1991, George celebrates his 35th birthday by going to a local restaurant and taking a table by himself. Here you go, sir. Here's your burger and fries. Thank you. Let me know if there's anything else I can do for you. Actually, there is. It's a thing work. TV? While he's eating, the replays of some clips from the day's news about the Supreme Court hearings with Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas are playing. Over the last few years, or at various points, the Anita Hill hearings start a nationwide debate about sexual harassment in the workplace. On, my own. on your own, you didn't hire. A George flips out. He shouts uh, profanities. He uh, stands up and makes a spectacle of his disrespect for Anita Hill. He sees the trial as just another woman you dumb trying to bring down men. He became infuriated and stood up and yelled back at the television set. For him, it's as if the television was talking to him that all women are evil and all women are directed to destroy him. Don't worry about it. Forget it. For George, this did become a defining moment. Thoughts of rage swirl in his head. It's like a scene right out of The Fisher King. George really hated women with a passion. And hearing this character, Jack, and the Fisher King rant about women and how evil they were really inspired him to take out his hatred against all women. George has his target, and it's only a matter of time before he finds the perfect location for his copycat crime. George Hennard is a down-and-out loner who can't connect to the outside world. But a movie called The Fisher King may show him how to leave a mark on a society that has seemingly forgotten him. Hearing this character Jack and The Fisher King rant about women and how evil they were really resonated with George. And it really helped him, in many ways, to feel empowered in his beliefs. And, like the caller in the film, George is out for retribution against all the women who have rejected him. The morning of October 16, 1991, dawned like many others, except George awoke more resolute. He dressed better than he usually did, as if he were going on a date or going to church. George tidies up the house. He puts all his belongings out, uh, sets them out in an orderly fashion on the table, and he leaves a note about paying the utility bills. 
George writes on his calendar, Life has become a stalemate. There is simply no hope and not a prayer. I think George did realize what he was doing was wrong. It was planned, but he truly believed that these individuals had to pay for what they had done to him. It was truly an act of revenge. George grabs his guns, he gets in his truck, and he leaves. He drives about 20 miles to Colleen, Texas. There he spots a crowded restaurant, just like the one in The Fisher King. The restaurant was full of people, enjoying each other's company, having a great time, having their lunch. People who George always felt rejected him and that he never belonged never fit in. In the film, Robin Williams' character and his wife share a few moments of bliss before Edwin storms in and opens fire. Likewise, the diners across the street have no idea that evil lurks so close, ready to change their lives forever. He revs his engine and guns the accelerator, driving his truck right into the front of the restaurant. With two guns and a hundred rounds of ammunition, George picks his targets. And he is intent on going out in a blaze of glory, just like Edwin in The Fisher King. The shock diners, they are suddenly concerned for the driver of the truck. Some people rushed over to help. It would be the last thing they'd do. How are we doing? Please, please. Sam Wink, who was in the restaurant at the time of the shooting, can still recall the moment in horrific detail. He would go around to one side and he'd go back around to the other side, just shooting people. It was like shooting fish in a barrel. George seemed to be targeting women more than men. He was uh, shouting profanities about women as he walked through shooting. Was it worth it to you? It's to me. Probably for the first time in his life, George felt completely in control. And probably he was drunk with power. And here he was killing people. The dining room that minutes earlier was filled with laughter is now eerily silent, except for gunfire and the rantings of a madman. Hey! It was terrifying. What, you know, this is not really happening. What can I do, you know? And, and, and you were trying to think on your feet at the same time you were trying to uh, keep yourself from getting injured. And it just took every bit of strength out of your, out of your being to, to try to rationalize what to do. 
Miraculously, in the back of the restaurant, a manager is able to unlock a door and free some trapped employees. One of them calls 911. George has shot nearly 20 people and he is showing no signs of stopping. What he doesn't realize is authorities are closing in. Officer Ken Olson is one of the first to arrive. As I drove up there, I noticed that there was like the smell of gunfire. It was a very strong smell. And uh, there were people running out of the building. Hi. Please don't do it. As George prepares to take down another victim, Officer Olson takes aim. I saw the suspect basically getting ready to shoot this lady on the ground. No, please don't. So I decided to take the shot there, and I fired that uh, shot from about 40 yards away. <laughs> I struck him about an inch into his chest cavity, which was not a lethal wound. Being shot rattles George. He knows he's no longer in full control. I continued to shoot at him. We had this conversation. Uh, he t yelled out that he had hostages. Well, I told him that he didn't have any hostages, and he killed them all. And I was going to kill him. But George isn't going down without a fight. This bloodbath is far from over. George Hennard is a misogynist who has just slaughtered innocent people inside a Texas restaurant. His motivation for the heinous act ostensibly stems from a movie he's recently seen called The Fisher King. The Fisher King is a story about the aftermath of the shooting. But for George, it seemed like it was the only part of the movie that mattered. When he saw The Fisher King and hearing that DJ talk about how women are evil... George really related to that. He identified with what that man was saying. The movie pulled him in because he so identified with that character. In The Fisher King, the kind of people that were in the nightclub were successful, young, and attractive. They were everything that Edwin wanted to be. Possibly inspired by Edwin's actions, 35-year-old George Hennard also takes his revenge out on attractive people. He's already killed more than 20 people in cold blood. For those moments, George had his power, but that glory is taken away very quickly. Now it's a showdown between George and police. I decided that I needed to do something, and I was going to get as close as possible to him and eliminate the threat. But George has other ideas. George takes aim at a police officer who's creeping closer to him in the alcove, and he pulls the trigger. But the gun misfires. Valuable seconds tick away while he clears the misfire and reloads the gun with the proper ammunition. It's too late. George knows that the police have the upper hand. George makes a fateful and fatal decision. We have you surrounded. Come out with your hands up. He decides this is his moment to die. He puts the gun to his head. Put down the gun. 
Come out with your hands up. Then he pulls the trigger. He knew I was going to kill him, and I think he just kind of took the coward's way out. In the movie, The Fisher King, after Edwin shoots up the restaurant, he also commits suicide. Suicide is the way that most mass shooters go out. They really are taking everyone with them. Death has always been there. They feel there's no other solution. But before they go, they want to take as many victims as they can. In all, 23 victims die with an additional 33 injured. Officer Ken Olson's actions may have prevented a higher body count. I don't really consider myself a hero. I did what I was paid to do. I'd never, you know, seen anything like that. The carpet was blood-soaked, and uh, it, you just walked on it, and it squished like it was wet carpet. And for survivor Sam Wink, the shooting will always be remembered as a life-changing event. I think there was a sense of relief once, once he was down. People were just in a state of shock, and they were ready to go home, ready to see their, their kinfolks, their loved ones. In the aftermath, authorities try and piece together what led to this gruesome massacre. From the way George left things laid out, it's obvious he's been thinking about this shooting for a long time. They found a box of videotapes that included uh, programs about James Huberty and his California massacre. Uh, they found videos of the Lockerbie disaster. They found the notes that George had left and the notations in the calendar. But it's what's found during the investigation that suggests a certain movie may have given him the inspiration for committing the mass shooting. During his autopsy, a ticket was found in George's pocket. A ticket for the Fisher King. No one will ever know exactly how much the Fisher King played a role in his actions. We'll never really know why Hennard committed his crime. Uh, we know it was a product of his hatred, of his paranoia, uh, of a life that was spent blaming others for the problems that uh, George himself had. What we do know is the worst mass shooting of its time. Police can only speculate. I think for George, he may have thought he left those clues for us to find. He may have felt that he had told us that he was avenging society for not accepting him. And his focus was definitely on women. Women who he desired, who he felt had always rejected him. If George was inspired by the film, he chose to ignore the heartwarming themes of humanity and redemption in the face of adversity. He only focused on the film's dark undertones of violence and despair. George Hennard had many problems, uh, and like a lot of people, he was unwilling to, um, to acknowledge those problems in himself and found a reason to think that it was someone else's problem. He saw the world as being against him, and he fought back in, in a terrible way. 
and like the film, for those that faced George and lived, healing is possible. Life is short, and you better take advantage of every day because you're not promised tomorrow. You you didn't ask for it, but you got it, so you have to wear the you have to wear the badge. Yes, I was in there. Yes, I faced death. Yes, I tried to help. Uh, and yes, I survived. The Fisher King ends with Robin Williams and Jeff Bridges' characters starting new lives together. Their friendship helps them push past the pain. This story brought to life by actors on the top of their game. The Fisher King will go down in history as one of Robin Williams' greatest performances, whereas George Hennard will just be remembered for one of the deadliest killing sprees of all time. George had nothing to hold on to. He didn't have friends. Most of all, he didn't have a girlfriend. There wasn't anyone in his life that he cared about or he thought cared about him. George Hennard was an unfinished soul. George had many problems, and like a lot of people, he was unwilling to, um, to acknowledge those problems in himself and found a reason to think that it was someone else's problem. If you enjoyed this episode of Copycat Killers, don't forget to subscribe at Podcast One or Apple Podcast. Then go to Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com for clips, extras, and more from the TV version of the series, including chilling reenactments and crime scene photos you'll only find on Reels Channel. Find Reels on your TV at Reels.com. I'm Dr. J. Buzzman Ornsteiner. <laughs>